Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Claire Armistead. This week, novelist Ivy Pakoda promises that she didn't set out to mess with the conventions of crime fiction, but admits that she might inadvertently have done so. But first, we talk to a man who is messing with scientific orthodoxy by challenging the role that nurture plays in defining who we are. Is it possible that it's all just the luck of the genes? He's Robert Plomin, a psychologist and geneticist who has made his name with twin studies and behaviour genetics. For the first time ever, he finally finds himself at the crest of the wave as cutting-edge research into DNA, the building block of life, begins to back what have long been only theories and hypotheses. In Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are, he confronts the issue head-on, and Sean Kane is there, though she has a confession to make first. So we're talking about your book, Blueprint, um, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. And I sort of went into this book, not with any expectations, but I I just knew that even though I'm not a scientist, that I had a sort of a real interest in your book and its premise before I'd even got my hands on the book. Can you say something about your interest, though? Yes. I mean, was was it sort of like... uh you know, feeling like, oh, genetics. Or, or <laughs> well, was really more open-minded about it. Well, more. Um, my partner's a, a biologist uh-huh. and uh, works with genes. And so uh-huh. I immediately, I was given a little flappy pamphlet <laughs> at, the, at a dinner that I was at of your book. And it was uh-huh. sort of a preview. So I rushed it home to show him. And he went, oh, great. Look, you know, I get enough of this at work. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> sort of thing. Um, but I was kind of excited to enter it into it a little uh-huh. bit in my own way. Because I always admire science writers in their ability to communicate because uh, certainly in my experience I've met more than a few scientists that really let's say struggle with communication me <laughs> included s- not you no, not you definitely at all <laughs> really I, I don't know if you read the acknowledgements but I just had this editor at Penguin Laura Stickney who was off the scale in yeah. terms of I rewrote the whole book right. I cut out half of the book right and she was just totally brilliant it was like as I say in, the, in acknowledgements it was like a master class in going from writing academic papers to writing a book that you hope will appeal to more people. That's funny, because you have written books before, but they've always been skewed perhaps to the it, more academic oh, audience. Oh, very much so. Yeah. I mean, I've only written one other book uh, 25 years ago that was more for a popular market. So what did you, in terms of when things were cut, and it's funny yeah. to be talking about what's not in the book, but <laughs> in terms of being told what your priorities should be for an average reader, yes, what was that? I, I mean, just totally brilliant. You know, scientists always want to say, but, but, caveat here, caveat there. You know, the, if you distill this message, it's that. And she did allow me to put stuff in the footnotes. So there's 60 pages of footnotes, yes. which after writing all this other material, it was... T- it was it hurt too much to just throw it away. <laughs> so I put a lot of it in the uh, in the notes. I think that was the main thing is pruning things. But on the other hand, she found some things like these big findings that I talk about. I had them smushed into one chapter, and she said no, they should each be expanded into a separate chapter. That's mm. what people will be interested in. Whereas I'm more interested in the second. Half
second half of the book, which is the uh, DNA revolution, you know, and all of that, because mm. it's really happening now. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so I, I, when I got back the first, I, I sent it in, what, uh, a year and a half ago. And, yeah, I've written books, so I thought, you know, it should give me some good editorial comment. Five single-page spaces of general comments, mm. and then the t- corrections are tracked in red. Every page had a lot of red in it. And so when <laughs> I first saw this, I said, no way. You know, I've written the book already. I was on to other things. Mm. But then when I read them, you know, after calming down, I said, <laughs> God, she's right about that. She's right about that. She was right about every single thing. I mean, it is. it was a miraculous experience. I've never had anything close to that. That's interesting. And did it, did it sort of help in any way clarify anything in your own mind in Absolutely. terms of really cuz you know you I've lived with this stuff for 45 years I know it so well it's really hard to understand how difficult it is for people who haven't been exposed to this mm. to understand those concepts so she was brave enough to keep saying you may think you clarified this. It's still not clear to me, you know? <laughs> and you really it's, I think all science writers ought to have someone like that until they learn to be well, I don't know if you can ever learn it really. You need that outside view on it, you know? Mm. Well, I mean, let's start with this because I suppose it's good to sort of establish some definitions before we go into anything yes. in, in mm-hmm. much detail. But the concept of heritability, which is really, really interesting. And I think when you hear the word, you sort of know what this is going to imply. But if you could explain what it means in the context of your book. Yes, that's absolutely key. And that's why I spent a lot of time doing it. I had about five extra pages that Laura made me take out. (laughs) But I put most of them in the notes because I've got a half dozen or so common misconceptions about it. Heritability includes the word heritable. That's sort of genetic. That's sort of DNA. But all of these things mean very different things. So heritability, is, it's a descriptive statistic that's referring to individual differences in a population, why some people are taller and some people are shorter, weight. Everything we study, we're looking at individual differences between people. Why are some people schizophrenic and others not? The idea of behavioral genetics is to ask, do our DNA differences, how much can they explain of these differences that we see? Mm -hmm. Because in the past, psychology has been completely environmentalistic, which is the idea that you are what you learn. And schizophrenia, even when I was in graduate school, it was just, you were just told it's environmental and it's what your mother did to you early in life, which I think is so wicked. You know, mother blaming is a lot of the environmental theories at the time. Mm. At that time when I was in graduate school, it was dangerous politically. People told me you're nuts for getting into genetics. And sometimes personally to even talk about genetic influence. So over these years now, that's changed a lot. And so the way I started is I asked people, how heritable do you think eye color is? And there they know, yeah, eye color, difference. Some people have blue eyes, some have brown eyes. And say, yeah, I I can see parents with blue eyes tend to have kids. So they'll say that's 70% heritable, meaning 70% of the differences between people in eye color can be accounted for by DNA differences. It's actually 90-some percent heritable. Mm. And similarly for weight, people think that's only 30% heritable. It's 70% heritable. They underestimate it, but they sort of understand that we're talking about individual differences. What they don't know, and what my book tries to sneak in as best I could past Laura, is the (laughs) idea that we have 3 billion base pairs of DNA. 99% are the same for all of us. We're talking about the 1% of DNA that differs And that's what causes differences. That's why we're focused on that. So it's a limited view. The other 99% of our DNA is what makes us human. This 1% 
is what makes us individuals. And that's what we're talking about with Blueprint, how DNA makes us who we are. It should say, as individuals. <laughs> well, I mean, talking about individuals, a lot of your research has involved twins. And it would be really interesting just to mention, because um, you mentioned that survey just then about how people both overestimated and underestimated mm -hmm. the influence of genetics on uh, heritability. And you mentioned weight, which I think is a very interesting topic to, to bring up because, as you said, people quite dramatically underestimated the role of genetics yeah. on weight. Can you sort of explain, particularly in reference to your research with twins, mm -hmm. how we've come to understand the, gen the genetic role in, in our weight? Yes. Well, there are two main methods. And they're very different, yet they give you the same result. And in science, that's always a good thing because every method has its problems. But if they both converge on the same conclusion, you feel a lot more comfortable with the result. And I'd like to actually start with the adoption project because in the book, my two major projects are what's called the Colorado Adoption Project, which is a study I did when I was in the U.S. It's gone on for 40 years. And now this twin study of 10,000 pairs of twins in the U.K. called TED's Twins Early Development Study. Just briefly, the adoption method, though, is like a social experiment where if you say nature and nurture run together in families, so you notice that you can see this in the real world. Heavier parents tend to have heavier children. Weight runs in families. For a long time, people just assume, well, that's nurture. You know, the parents give the kids the food. They are role models for their lifestyles. Perfectly reasonable to think it's all environmental. But the adoption method says, well, let's look at adoptive parents who raise the kids from early in life, but they don't, they're not genetically similar to the kids. They correlate zero. And conversely, what about the birth parents of those kids who adopted away those kids from birth, haven't seen the kids since, have no influence on their lives? They correlate just as much as the parents who rear their own kids. So that's why it's such a dramatic example of uh, the power of genetics, and the other part of this, the lack of power of the sort of environment we assumed to be all important, nurture, the family, systematic family environments. Okay, so that's the adoption method. The twin method gives you the same answer, but it's a completely different. And it's a little harder for people to understand, so I think it's nice to start with the adoption method. So the twin method, 1% of all births are twins. You know, everybody must know twins. And one-third of those are identical twins, and they are clones. They have the same DNA. They came from the same fertilized egg that then split it within the first two weeks of life. So they're 100% similar genetically. The other type of twin is called a fraternal twin, non-identical twin. They're like any brother and sister sharing 50% of their genes. They're 50% similar. So the essence of the twin method is you've got one group of twins, identical twins, who are 100% alike pair by pair, the other is 50% alike. So any trait you want to think of, say musical ability, which really hasn't been studied much. If you could measure musical ability, not an easy thing to do, <laughs> you'd find that if it's heritable, you've got to predict identical twins are more similar than fraternal. For, for weight, it turns out that identical twins are about 90% similar, and I think it's like 80.8 is their correlation, and non-identical twins are about 0.5. And you won't probably want me to get into this, but you sort of double that because uh, to estimate the extent to which individual differences in weight 
are due to genetic differences. And the answer there is about 60 or 70% of the differences between people are due to DNA differences. And that is shocking because all of our, the way we think about weight is just a matter of free will. If you just had a bit more self-control, you know, you could, and it is true that if you stopped eating, you lose weight. But what we're talking about is describing individual differences as they exist in the population. People like me always trying to diet, <laughs> other people not caring, other people are fitness freaks. You know, throw that all in the mix and just say how much of the resulting differences in body weight right now in this snapshot are due to DNA differences. And the answer is a lot, 70% of the differences. So it's not all genetic, but not many people realize how big the genetic effect is, and they don't seem to appreciate it. You know, there's a lot of negative stuff going around about weight. And, you know, to get, you know, in the book, I, I describe my own genetic scores. Yes. And I actually have a super high genetic score for weight, 94th percentile. So I'm s meant to be a genetic fatty. Now, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm fairly heavy. I'm at the You're 70th, doing okay. I'm 70th percentile <laughs> in actual body weight. Mm-hmm. And so it's a good example, though, because then people say, well, if you learned your genetics and you knew you were, had a genetic liability to be obese, uh, you just give up and say, I'm a genetic fatty. I can't do anything about it. And I think that's so dumb when you examine it from your own point of view. It's been tremendously motivating for me because I know it's not the problem we all think it is, losing those six pounds from Christmas. This is a lifelong battle. Mm -hmm. I just eat whatever's on the table, and you could say, well, that's self-control, but it isn't, you know. I can have a small plate if people aren't eating the rest of the food on the table. We're talking, and I just before you know it, I keep eating. Even if I'm full, I say, oh, no, I don't want any more. I keep eating. Mm -hmm. Now, it sounds like free will, but it is different from that, you know. And then the other side of it is a responsiveness to food cues. You know, I can't have fresh bread in the house. I used to like to bake bread. Mm -hmm. I'll eat the whole loaf of bread because it just smells and tastes. I'm starting to drool thinking about <laughs> this right now. So I think we need to recognize that people differ genetically. It's not just a matter of free will, mm -hmm. even though it's tricky because, yes, if I it stopped eating, I would lose weight. Mm. But the thing is, it's e some people, it's just easy. They just stop eating for a while and lose weight. For me, it's a lot harder. Mm. And I think we need to respect that and have more tolerance for others, but also for ourselves. I don't beat myself up about being overweight. You know, I say, I've got a real battle here, and I put my mind to it. I just don't have high-energy snacks in the house, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. So you can do something about it the whole the center of this book and I think it would be very easy for people to misunderstand it and to come into this book expecting something in particular often a very negative view but the whole point of this book is not to say that environmental factors and individual free will count for nothing that your DNA absolutely determines a hundred percent of who you are mm -hmm. it's more that DNA has a far bigger role in things that perhaps we would not have expected before. Yeah, exactly right. You know, I wish we could just, ju I'd just like to reiterate that because it's so important. People say, oh, yes, everything's determined by the genes. You know, you see that when the headline writers take a story. And, <laughs> you know, I know the journalists don't have anything to do with the headline writers, but it often comes out, genes determine your behavior, you know, mm. and we're definitely not saying that. You can have a highly heritable trait and you can do something about it environmentally, but isn't it good to know that weight, for example, is highly heritable. You might not want to know that, but in a way, if you know that, knowledge is power. Mm. And if, as we do, can predict that with DNA now, and you knew your children, your child had a genetic liability to be overweight, 
we know whatever you do, you've got to do it early. Mm. And DNA allows you to predict early. You can choose to ignore the information, but wouldn't you want to know as a parent, okay, my kid's nice and thin now, but if you knew later on they're going to be heavy, and, and you, do you know that early, like infancy and early childhood weight doesn't predict later weight? Mm-hmm. So you could have a nice thin kid, but what if you knew the genetic liability to be obese is really high? You'd want to do something about it early and say, look, you've got to start paying attention to your diet. You know, we're not going to wildly change your life. It's just, let's pay attention to that. You know, more even dramatic is, is alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Yes. And if you knew early that your child or yourself were likely to be alcoholic, it's not some high-tech sort of solution. It's just to know that if you drink as much as other people, you're at risk and they're not. Mm-hmm. And you don't become alcoholic unless you drink a lot of alcohol. So I think these are examples of how this could be so valuable because all of medicine is moving towards prevention. The only way to prevent is to predict. Mm-hmm. And DNA is the best predictor around. I mean, this is why I sort of singled out weight in particular because weight is something that affects all of us. We've all at yes. some point thought about our weight and perhaps considered our parents or perhaps even our grandparents and their figures and considered whether we, whether we have any sort of link between us. But in terms of other factors that you mentioned, it's quite normal for people to say, well, I have a, an addictive personality, for example, to say, you know, well, I, I sort of know that I have a bit of a problem with alcohol, so I might avoid gambling, for example. They, they sort of make links in, in these sort of behaviours. But they would almost, I think a lot of people might view that as almost like an individual quirk as opposed to something that could be mapped on a DNA level and I think that perhaps a lot of people may still find it very troubling to say that it was mappable Mm -hmm. that they like to think that a lot of the elements in their lives and the facets of their personality and behavior are quirks that have sort of formed of themselves as opposed to having been there from Mm. birth and it's interesting that you say that you had the reaction that actually it's sort of uh, fortified your will to tackle your diet because I think for a lot of people it's quite a frightening thing to be told well you're at risk of alcoholism you've got an increased risk of alcoholism you have an increased risk of depression Mm -hmm. um, because it almost implies that there is some sort of level of uh, it's unavoidable Mm -hmm. well what do you mean by quirk though because one it could mean it's just some funny little thing Mm. or what what did you mean I mean suppose like the unique uh, the traits that we feel make us unique. And while I think sometimes you can find solace in recognizing yourself in others, I think being told that actually a lot of what you think makes yourself unique is actually a, you're able to see it on a DNA level from when you are born. It can mm-hmm. be quite frightening for people. Yeah, but um, I think by quirk, some people mean you know, it is just this thing and it kind of makes me an individual. It's kind of unique. Mm. If anyone thinks of alcoholism that way, they ought to go visit some places for alcoholics. It's not nice. Mm. When you do a postmortem, you don't need microscopes to see the brain is rotted away. Mm. It's not a nice thing. So if anyone thinks this isn't something important, they should know well, it. Maybe, perhaps quirks was the wrong word, but I'm, I'm sort of, I'm trying to just convey, I suppose, that there, for a lot of people, I think they will find the idea that things are mappable mm-hmm. extremely troubling yep. because they like to feel like they've had some sort of role mm-hmm. whether it was a negative part of their life whether it was something like mental mm-hmm. illness or whether it was something like alcoholism yeah. that it happened because of a series of deliberate decisions that got them there as opposed to something that 
they were born to have yeah. and therefore couldn't avoid. Well, it, that's all sort of true. Everything you said is true. <laughs> These are, uh, opposites. I mean, the idea of you're born with, that implies it's deterministic. You will absolutely become an alcoholic. Not yeah. true. It's a propensity. And as I say, if you don't drink alcohol, you cannot become an alcoholic. So you can definitely do something about it. But if you don't know that you have a, a risk, a genetic risk, that say your siblings don't have, because you're only 50% sibling, uh, similar to your siblings, you wouldn't know that if you drink as much as others, you might become the life of the party and you start to identify yourself as the good party girl, you know, likes to get high and all of that. Mm. And it just... You don't suddenly become alcoholic. Over the years, you drink more and more. You, you drink when you've got problems in your life. You know, you, more and more reasons to drink. And before you know it, you're drinking in the morning. And, you know, so I think it's, it's in, invidious. It slips up on you, you know, a bit. And so I think it's darn good to know that you've got the genetic propensity to drink. And it's absolutely in your control to do something about that. That's sort of the thing that often scientists say, particularly in reaction to the increase in things like 23andMe and uh, Ancestry sort of do-it-yourself mm -hmm. DNA kits that a lot of scientists worry that people aren't equipped with the knowledge to be able to interpret what they get back and often what they will get back is not necessarily something they want to hear. They might be doing it deliberately to say find out if they're uh, have a risk of breast cancer mm -hmm. but when that comes back as a positive and says mm -hmm. yes you are at risk I think at some sort of primal level your reaction is well great I'm going to get breast cancer as opposed to oh great I have an increased risk yeah. of getting breast cancer yeah well I, I don't want to defend the direct-to-consumer companies but you know four million people have paid with their credit cards to do it and you, there is an argument that it's paternalistic to say we should regulate people from finding about their own DNA if they want to. Mm. And like the big one, Alzheimer's disease, you can tick the box saying you don't want that information. Also, they do provide information on uh, counseling help if you want it. But I think it exposes a larger issue, and that is I think we should be doing this on the NHS. Right. You know, we already screen neonates for genetic diseases for the same amount of money, we can get the whole genome. And we can, know, we can then, with that one shot, that one go, if we know your three billion base pairs of DNA, anything that comes down the line, we can say, say for alcoholism, the prediction now isn't that strong. But suppose it gets to 10%, 15%. It's already at the point you can predict as well with DNA as you can by knowing that you have a father who's alcoholic, in which case you have a five-fold greater risk. So it's already at that point. But suppose it gets even better. Now the NHS has your DNA data. They're going to use it for medical stuff. There are some medical things that you can't deal with them, age-related macular degeneration, the major cause of blindness in the elderly. Can't do anything about it once someone starts getting macular degeneration. All of medicine is focused on prevention. So if the NHS had your DNA and they saw, whoa, you have a very high risk uh, for ma age-related macular degeneration, you know, even though you're young, it will happen. You're very likely to have it happen. And here's what you can do about it. Mm -hmm. There's anti-inflammatory drugs. So Francis Collins, who's the head of NIH, the National Institutes of Health in the United States, and was head director of the Human Genome Project, he says, 10 years from now, we're going to look back and say it was incredibly unethical that we were not doing this on a universal level. Because then you get rid of the problem you're talking about. It would go through your GP, and your GP would call you in and say, look, you've got this really high genetic risk for alcoholism. You don't have to do anything about it. We're not going to give you drugs for it, but I'm just going to tell you 
you won't become alcoholic if you don't drink alcohol. In fact, you won't become alcoholic if you, do, if you just drink in moderation and you take your breaks from alcohol. Very simple, low-tech solutions. The amount of money that would save in the NHS is just unbelievable. Mm. In terms of individual, the positives to get out of this, because I suppose if we talk about how this would relate to people's everyday lives, I think it'd be a, a lot of parents out there would say, well, actually, yeah, I would like to know, you know, if I had a child, be able to sort of help them have the best life they can, and this would possibly help me. But I suppose a lot of, and you bring this up in the book, and it's fabulous, because uh, two people that I bought your book up with immediately responded with the exact same reaction, which was Gattaca which is the sort of film that I think everyone watches in high school genetics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, fabulous film. But um, you mention it and it's, it's in, in how your genetic makeup could be used against you, whether it's by governments or whether mm -hmm. it's by corporations. And I suppose a lot of the fear around everyone having their DNA mapped was, well, how could this be used against me in the same way that perhaps our data is being used right now by mm -hmm. social media companies. In the book, you sort of talk about that you, you sort of, you hope for a very you know, in a democratic society that it shouldn't be used against people and that, mm -hmm. that society should continue to be meritocratic. But what if it isn't, basically? Yeah, no, exactly right. And I think uh, Gattaca, at least for our generation, is younger kids, I think, don't know about it, really. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it does often come up otherwise. First thing to point out, that's a totalitarian government. Mm. They completely control people's lives. And they decided stupidly, because it doesn't, it doesn't fit with the genetics, mm. is to call people valids, or invalids just based on their DNA. What we know from DNA, it's not an either-or thing. It's all quantitative. There's perfectly normal dis distribution. So, and, well, lots I could say about that. But they're totalitarian. Brave New World is totalitarian environmental. Mm -hmm. Totalitarian governments are bad. I mean, we want to be individuals. We want to be free. And part of that expression is genetic, I think. So uh, let's hope we don't have totalitarian governments, although it's, it's quite so it's something to worry about these days, actually. <laughs> But um, data breaches are worries for all of us. I have to get a new credit card every three or four months because someone, I, there's fraud committed, right? So people are stealing my financial data. I would like to make an announcement. Anyone wants my DNA, I will gladly give it to you if you can make sure that I don't have financial uh, <laughs> breaches because they're a real hassle. And, you know, it's my money gone. <laughs> so I don't see, I'm not that worried about people seeing my genome. There's a mm -hmm. number of projects out there um, where they do your genome, uh, they give you all the data, and in return, you make that data not available to any person, but you know it's available for research. Finland started a project for 1.5 million people. They had a tremendous response. People want to contribute to the science. I, I think there's less concern out there in the public and more interest than there is in academia, especially in some disciplines. Estonia, the same thing. 25% of the population volunteered for this. Mm. So I think that one of the huge values of NHS is it's universal health care. We can handle the new DNA information because we distribute risk. Right now, we can make a pretty good prediction about cardiovascular risk. There was a paper in Nature Genetics about a month ago. Mm. So you're not going to stop. We're not going to say, oh, we're not going to take care of you in the NHS because you have a genetic risk. Mm. We're, we can spread that load out. But what about a money-based, insurance-based health system like in the U.S.? How are they going to handle this? No matter what they say, they're not going to be thrilled at insuring somebody who has a high genetic risk for cardiovascular disease. Mm. So I think it, it really should give us a chance to boost the NHS.
And in terms of the book is certainly not a nature versus nurture, but it is nature and nurture and that nature has been underestimated, whereas nurture has been overestimated in some cases. I'd love to sort of talk about things like in terms of crime, for example, or things that that are still up for debate, like things like serial killers, for example, which has always been a thing that people have said, well, serial killers are, are made, not born. Some people say they're born, they're not made. People have tried to map things like childhood head traumas on several mm-hmm. high-profile serial killers and say, well, they all had one yeah. at sort of very pivotal, you know, crucial age, and mm-hmm. therefore could we say that that was somehow a cause? And there's certainly behaviours that can be mapped. Mm-hmm. In terms of crime, yeah. what are the implications? Well, I think that's a, it's a good topic. I think serial killers, you can't do a study. There aren't that many. They aren't twins. You know, it's hard mm. to get there. You know, so it's hard to speak to that. But there's quite a bit of work. I've done some myself on psychopathy. And it's interesting that it appears early in life. And then in adolescence, there's a lot of what gets called, you know, delinquent, psychopathic, antisocial behavior, but that's called normative now. Mm. They actually are predicting the kids don't do those things, might be less normal than the kids who do. (laughs) But what you do have is this small group of kids who are sort of psychopathic early and as well as it continues. And it's lack of empathy. You know, it's not that they want to hurt you. It's just if they accidentally hurt you because they want to get what they want, well, you know, so, so what? But I think um, it raises a more general issue about behavior versus personality. So bullying in schools is a good example. It's a bit like this in a way, isn't it? I mean, they're not psychopaths, but bullies are, you know, maybe like to hurt people or dominate them or whatever. I don't think psychopaths do. They just want to get their way, and they don't care if you're in their way. They'll get you know, then they'll, they'll stamp it. on you. Mm. But they don't want to hurt you. Whereas bullies want to embarrass you, make themselves feel better, whatever. So in schools, zero tolerance for bullying absolutely works. But I just was on a program where we're talking about character training in school. If you think you've changed the bullies, I think that's mistaken. You can control bullying when you have the control. But when those kids go out of school and they're going down the street... I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the bullies are still bullies. So you haven't changed who they are, but you've changed their behavior. And people say, isn't that great? And I say, absolutely. It's great that we have schools with much less bullying. And with serial killers, that's why we have the Ten Commandments and laws. We know that people, some people, will do bad things. So we have laws that try to control that. To the extent we control that behavior, fantastic. But the control isn't absolute. And so in terms of making the the separation that a lot of people would have an understanding that there's medical conditions. So say things that they would categorize, I suppose, as medical. So things like uh, mental illness and things like, say, autism, things that can be diagnosed as opposed to things uh, that are behavioral. In terms of behavior, then... You, uh, Could I speak to that, though? Yes. Because I don't accept that, um, that, these, that there are diagnoses. You know, right. part of what my message is there are no disorders. Well, I mean, yes, actually. You, you mentioned um, ADHD, um, attention deficit uh, mm-hmm. hyperactivity disorder, that you say that there are no disorders, that these are actually several different behavioral traits that could be individually mapped. Is, yeah. it, it's is all behavior. Yeah. You know, just because we give dyscalculia a Latin name doesn't mean it is a disease nor dyslexia, nor autism, nor schizophrenia, nor alcoholism. The medical model has imposed that diagnostic either-or classification scheme on us, and it absolutely doesn't work for common disorders. So there is no such thing as schizophrenia, autism. There are behavioral problems. 
thought disorders, paranoia, that we call at the extreme schizophrenia. But the point of the genetics is genetic liability is perfectly normally distributed in a bell-shaped curve. We all have lots of genes for schizophrenia. It's a matter of more or less rather than either or. The more you have, the more likely it is you become schizophrenic. There's no cutoff point at which you become schizophrenic, autistic, ADHD. And that has a lot of important implications. First, I think we should throw away diagnostic manuals. They're nonsense. We need to recognize there are problems, but don't pretend it's us normal people versus those poor people we diagnose as having this disorder. And second, it, it helps us think about these things better. If there's no disorder, you can't cure it because there's no disorder. Mm. What we should be thinking about is alleviating behavioral problems. And that's what's being done successfully with schizophrenia. CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, is not trying to make people not be schizophrenic, but it's trying to get them to see that they can alter their behavior to function better in life without drugs. Mm. But I suppose with autism, for example, that rather than damning them to be abnormal with that label, often that label can sometimes bring people solace because they can sort of see something that they considered internally they considered abnormal. Yes. They can actually map themselves on other beings, uh, other you know, their, their fellow humans and say, you know, this is what I'm like. And sometimes parents find some solace as well in getting an explanation at least that yeah. one word is sort of a, a word of, you know, a way to explain to them why, say, maybe their, their child hasn't yes. spoken. But is it good to explain things to people that are totally wrong? I mean, it's make-believe. There should be no solace in having this label because there's nothing you can do about that label. It's not real. And it says, okay, you're weird because you have this dis medical disorder. And it's not true. It's all part of the normal distribution. There will be kids who will be a little bit less repetitive in their symptoms than you, some a little bit more. You know, it's just totally quantitative. And people like to have a medical diagnosis, you know, like with reading problems in school. Lots of kids have reading problems. I'm not denying the problems. I'm just saying, what's to be gained by saying, your child has dyslexia? You say, Whew, okay, now I know my child just has this disease. It's totally wrong. It's baseless. But is it not the same way as, say, being told you have like a, a say an increased risk of alcoholism that it, it's a way of conveying something in, in a very succinct way Di no, but, uh, rather than sort of saying your child you're is weird it's what you're saying, conveying is weird and wrong you're saying okay we didn't know it but now your child has this diagnosis they are this what, how is that different from saying a miracle has been performed and god has changed your brain so that you act in this way it has no more reality than that it's far better to think of it as a dimension. And I, you know, people who have these, you know, like schizophrenia, for example, they're very much into this, you know, understanding that there's a range of differences. Schizophrenics are not schizophrenics. They're human beings that have some behavioral problems that we lump together, usually unwarrantedly, and call the disease. Mm -hmm. It's really, there's a lot of wickedness that comes from it. And then you start thinking, well, let's wait for the cure for this disease. But there is no disease. You say in the book that basically you've been waiting 30 years to write this book. And part of that, you said part of that was cowardice because it is... It was dangerous it's, then. It's, yeah, it's, it's often, I mean, genetics are something that people, it can be used politically and sometimes people aren't equipped to understand it properly. But... You also said partly because you needed the research and the technology to sort of catch up and provide the, the backbone yes. to a lot of this. And 
a lot of what you're saying, I'm sort of connecting this to what you were just saying, Ben, about that disorders don't exist, but there are behavioural traits that are being lumped together as a disorder, that rather than looking at our DNA and saying, well, this gene means you have this, you use a, a word called polygenic scores, um, yes. which are basically... Oh, I suppose it'd be good for you to explain, but it's, it's, it's not as neat as a single gene, you're yes. saying. There are, there are thousands of single gene disorders, and they're the way people think about genetics from Mendel. They're necessary and sufficient. So you only get Huntington's disease, you know, this thing that killed Woody Guthrie, the famous folk singer, if you have that gene. You know, so if you have that gene, you absolutely get it, and nothing, you'll, you'll die from it. So people think of genes in that deterministic way. The difference with common disorders and behavioral traits, medical as well as behavioral, they're not like that. They're very heritable, but there are thousands of genes. That's what we've learned in the last few years. Thousands of DNA differences that each have small effects. So what can you do about that? You can't study those effects because they're so small. But what you can do is put them together, thousands of these DNA differences, in what we call poly, many, genic, genetic scores. And that's what the DNA revolution is about, being able to use that DNA information from thousands of DNA differences to predict things like alcoholism, school achievement, and all the other things we're talking about. So it, I'm glad you mentioned that because that really is where the DNA revolution is going to hit society. And it's still, it's still relatively yeah. young as a science. Yeah, it, you know, it's tremendously exciting. I mean, 15 years ago, I started to try to find genes for some of these things I've been studying. I didn't think we needed any more twin and adoption studies to show these things are heritable. Every study shows they're heritable. The real game changer would be finding some of those DNA differences. The technology just wasn't there. I wasted you know, 12 years, three major research efforts. It just came up with nothing. And that's because we didn't realize that we're talking about thousands of genes of small effect, and it's only in the last five years or so. And I study educational achievement in schools because that's like the business end of cognitive abilities, which is my focus. And uh, first we found that it's highly heritable, but two years ago we could explain two or three percent of the differences between children and their GSE scores. Two years ago, five percent. Last year, 10%, and this month, because of a new paper that was published, we can explain 15% of the differences between kids and their GCSE scores from DNA alone. And you could do that as well at birth as you could when they're 16 and taking their GCSEs. So the progress here is just amazing. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen anything like it in science. And it's going to get bigger and bigger because this isn't behavioral. This isn't psychology. It's the same methods being used throughout the life sciences and medicine because most of the medical things are just like this. They're common. They're not rare single genes. Those are devastating for the people that have them, but fortunately, they're very rare, one in 50,000, one in 100,000. We're talking about the big things that have a burden on society, like cardiovascular disease, obesity, smoking, and then also mental health and illness, and I think cognitive abilities and disabilities. You're not going to be able to retire. You're going to have to well, that's <laughs> stick it. around and see yeah, what happens. No, definitely. I always said I was going to go out feet first, but now I really mean it because, <laughs> you know, after all this time, 45 years, it's all just happening. So, you know, how on earth could I say, okay, I think I'll go out to the farm now? <laughs> Robert Plowman talking there to Sean Kane. 
Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ivy Pakoda is no stranger to the breaking of boundaries, transforming herself from a professional squash player to a novelist. You'd be forgiven for thinking her latest book, Wonder Valley, is a crime novel. Two leading exponents of the genre, Dennis Lehane and Michael Connolly, certainly seem to think so, judging by the cover blurbs. And yet, she's at great pains to explain that what she has actually created is closer to an urban opera. When Ivy met up with Richard Lee, she began by giving him a taster of the novel. Tony is startled by his phone ringing in his shirt pocket. Do you know about this, his wife says? There's some psycho running down the 110. Naked, who does that, at rush hour? He can hear sirens approaching from the opposite direction, threading their way through traffic that slowed to a crawl in appreciation of the facing jam. Tony, did you see him? I saw him. And he was running. That's it? Every day the same route. The city streets to the 10 West, the 10 West to the 110 North through downtown, the 110 North to the 5 North into Burbank, his car passing above or through or along neighborhoods whose names he's unsure of, whose streets are unfamiliar, a city thoughtlessly traversed. Tony, you should lock your doors. It's on the news. From television to television, computer screen to computer screen, the jogger will cover the city. He'll enter living rooms and appear on kitchen countertops. He'll be watched by people burning off last night's calories on treadmills. He'll pop up on smartphones, his journey in the palm of your hand. Did you lock your doors? You don't know what's going to happen. I'm not locking my doors. It's too much to be sitting in this traffic jam while the runner moves freely, part of the city, in it, not just passing through it. What time do you think you'll be home? The runner exits the freeway, cutting up the embankment just after 7th Street. Only a few drivers see him as he scrambles up the hill dotted with exhaust-choked trees, skirts the dismal shrubs sheltering a gaudy Italianate apartment complex. He emerges on Bixel, then pauses for a second, before doubling back to 7th and continuing west. He begins to leave downtown, emerging into the no-man's land of medical buildings, drab apartments, and off-brand restaurants. He passes businessmen in flashy cars headed for the glass towers of the financial district, delivery trucks returning to the warehouse district, cyclists darting between the stop-starting buses. It's an odd crowd that watches him. Arrivals for the first shift in the sweatshops, homeless who've wandered up from Skid Row a mile or so to the east, hospital workers, medic techs and tired nurses, leaving their overnights, Residents of the few tumble-down apartments, undocumented workers hustling gigs in the Home Depot lot. 
To those who see him over here, the runner is an apparition. They are tracking him from the helicopter, swooping down Wilshire over the park, the police chopper just ahead of the news crew. The 110 still stalled through downtown. A two-car collision on the 10 is moved to the shoulder. Drive time over the past 20 minutes. The southbound 5 slow between the 710 and the 605. A mattress on the 105 blocking the right lane near LAX. Tony watches the two choppers cut to the west. He undoes his seatbelt and opens his door. He peels himself from his seat and leaves the keys in the ignition. He doesn't bother to stretch. He begins to run, following the path of the jogger through the stalled cars and onto the city streets. He's a gearhead. Trail shoes, barefoot shoes, energy boost footwear, heat tech in the winter, moisture wick in the summer, iPod, sports headphones, GPS watch, calorie counter, heart rate monitor, dozens of gadgets and outfits to make his run go faster, seem more professional, more meaningful. Still, on his morning runs, Tony experiences a tightness in his quads that drops to his calves until he's fully warm. There's an ache in his right knee and a click in his hip. No matter how much he spends on gadgets and gear, he never feels as good as he should. But running down the 110 in his button-down twill pants and loafers, he is live. His limbs are loose. He's not lost inside the music from his headphones, but buoyed by the sounds of the city. Even the hard slap of the asphalt underneath his flat-soled shoes is an inspiration. You too, motherfucker. You can't leave your damn car like that. You can't leave your damn car. You running after your boyfriend? The hecklers urge him on. He cuts up the embankment at 7th and heads west. At the intersection of Lucas Avenue, he catches sight of the naked jogger a block ahead and continues his pursuit. The jogger enters the outskirts of Pico Union, a tangle of Salvadorian and Honduran shops, indoor swap meets, and call centers. He jogs north for one block before cutting into MacArthur Park, where the homeless and those who didn't make it home are stretched out on the grass like body bags. Wonder Valley stretches from Beverly Wood to Skid Row, from Joshua Tree National Park to the beach, but how did you get started? What was the spark? Well, I teach creative writing in, in Skid Row, and I spent a lot of time listening to the stories of the participants in my workshop. I have to be careful not to call them students because they are artists and writers in their own right. And um, one of the stories sparked something in me about a woman I uh, had in class several times who grew up on a goat farm in Arizona, and her father had made her brother eat a hawk that he had shot. And, um, you know, I had started writing a book about homelessness in Los Angeles, and it was very ponderous and, you know, kind of heavy-handed. And and I rented a house in the desert, and suddenly this woman's story came back to me because, you know, she'd grown up in the desert. And I saw this link between the desert and Skid Row, and I thought, you know, well, no one's story begins in Skid Row, you know, for the most part. Very few people are born there, and if they are, they don't spend their entire lives there. I thought about how someone would wind up living in Skid Row. And so the story came together from the, the memory of this woman's childhood tale of growing up in the desert and then, you know, how I know she came to live in Skid Row. Because one of the things about the book that's very striking, you don't see a lot of homeless people in fiction who are anything more than ciphers. Yeah, I mean, it, it's quite interesting because, you know, the first time I walked into my writing workshop, I mean, I knew I was in the right place, but the people who were gathered at the table you know, didn't look what you and I might imagine as homeless. You know, they're not, you know, in disheveled or, you know, unwashed or in dressed, you know, in rags. You know, they were very 
you wouldn't know. And, you know, I think there's lots of misconceptions about what homelessness is. It's not just the truly indigent and helpless you see in the street. There are many levels of homelessness. And, you know, there are people who are, you know, don't mean to be homeless and by, you know, terrible circumstances wind up living on the street and, you know, hold on to as much of their normal lifestyle as possible, the way they look, the way they present themselves. So I was, it really sort of changed. I had to really reconfigure my whole mindset about what homelessness was. And the people who are the main actors in the book put a different face on homelessness than, you know, we see in passing. They're real actual people with yes. real stories and real motivations. I mean, yeah. was, did, was that one of the things you set out to do to try and put a, a human face on? I mean, I didn't have a plan. And I think if you start writing with a plan to sort of, you know, educate people or have a theme as your subject, you're going to have a pretty thin book or a heavy handed book, you know, theme isn't great subject matter or in the like, and um, politics aren't great subject matter. But as I was writing about Skid Row, I realized that the humanity and the joy was really important to convey in the book. And that was sort of my, as I was getting more and more into the story, that became my goal. Yeah, so you've got these these real human beings who happen to be not actually with a roof over their heads. You've got this kind of idea that there's there's this hawk in the desert somehow, so you're connecting the city and the desert. Where do you come up with the opening? Where does that come from? Well, okay, so that is um, a story I remember from my childhood an acquaintance of mine um, was at an all-night party with close friends of mine, and he had a mental breakdown at the end of the night, probably drug-related, but also probably something to do with his own you know, mental state. And he ran across the Brooklyn Bridge naked and was struck by a car and killed. And I heard about the story two ways. The following day, I heard it from the people I knew who had been with him, who were understandably devastated. But I also heard about it from uh, two women who I knew from my health club, where I grew up playing squash, and their tennis players who were jogging over the bridge. And their take was really sort of, you know, disparaging. Look at this druggy psycho who did this horrible thing, and oh, he died, but, you know, what do you expect? And then my friends were really upset. And it struck me how an incident can be interpreted in many different ways. So, you know, depending on through whose eyes we're seeing something, the interpretation is wholly different. So I wanted to write about something that changed vis-a-vis the perspective of the person we were looking through. And in L.A., traffic is a huge deal, and it's the one unifying factor. Everyone sits in traffic and listens to the traffic report. So I thought, well, you know, a man disturbing traffic would be a great vehicle for, like, examining the way the city sees things differently. This kind of uh, this helicopter-eye perspective on the different characters. Exactly. But I'm intrigued as to when in the process that happened. You know, I can't quite remember. I'd written a couple different – I usually write for a 50 to 60 to 100 pages before I realize that – I mean, you're never supposed to write a prologue until I realize I want a prologue because I love a prologue. <laughs> and uh, I love, you know, Don DeLillo and Ian McEwen always have novels where there's this amazing event. It's almost like a short story at the beginning. And it's something I really love because it just sort of I love the novel that follows. But the opening of McEwen's Enduring Love with that balloon accident sort of stands on its own or DeLillo's Pathco at the Wall in the front of Underworld really stands on its own. It's a novella. And I love the idea that within a story, there's another story that you can sort of pluck out of it. And I write until I find that moment. So it takes me a while to get into it. And then I figure out what is the moment that I can use isolate to make the short story in, within the book. So a dumb question. So when you're writing the this, this opening, this kind of bravura section where you're zooming into the cars and out of the cars and watching the runner, and do you know who the characters are yet? 
No, I mean, some I do and some I don't and some I figure out as I'm writing it and I'm like, that's awesome. He's there too. Great. Perfect. And then I'll say, you know, I didn't know who Tony was, but I wanted this sort of straight man character. I wanted someone who like the average reader could connect with. And I started create. He was the one who I created as I was writing the scene. Yeah. And so therefore, and then you so he's in the book now. So then where does he go? Well, that was tricky because I really didn't know because he is the least likely character to have anything to do with either the desert or Skid Row. So that took some work. But then you think about it, you're like, well, he's done something crazy. He's stopped traffic. He's running after this naked guy. He'd probably go to the jail. The jail is in Skid Row. So it starts to come together. And there's this amazing moment where you're like, I don't know who's doing this, me or somebody else. And it's just like, it's rolling. You know? <laughs> I mean, your novel sets out in pursuit of this missing person, this naked guy and you've got an arrest right at the beginning of the of the opening chapter as well but readers who find quotes from Michael Connolly or Dennis Lehane on the cover might be in for something of a surprise oh don't tell them that <laughs> <laughs> but were you trying to set were you setting out to kind of mess with the conventions of, of genre fiction not really I mean so Dennis Lehane sort of was kind enough to shepherd my last novel into the world in several ways and when my editor sent it to him I was shocked. I said, why are you sending Dennis Lehane, of all people, my novel? And she said, well, you wrote a crime novel. And I thought, well, I, well, that's news to me. <laughs> Turns out it's also news to Dennis uh, because he doesn't think of it as a crime novel. He was like, this is a, he called it an urban opera. I mean, and I, a lot of his novels are not crime novels. You know, they're historical fiction. They have gangsters in them, but it's not about the crime. Mystic River is barely a crime novel in my mind. It's a sociological exploration of childhood trauma in this working class suburb of Boston. And, you know, I that's what I think I'm doing. And Michael Connolly is the one of the great chroniclers of Los Angeles. So, yes, it is a little confusing for people who see their names. Uh, I did a panel with Dennis, and they kept calling it a crime novel. And he turned to me and said, why do they keep calling this book a crime novel? <laughs> I said, because your name is on it. He said, oh, that's ridiculous. I don't think it's a crime novel. I mean, I guess who cares about marketing anyway, yeah. in a sense. But except that the fact that reading, in some sense, is kind of, it's a vote of confidence from the reader. They sit down with the book. They might buy it. They might get it for the library. They, they invest in it. And the, the signaling on the outside, the way it's presented, in some sense, changes that experience. Yeah, I think, it, you know, I do worry about that a lot. But um, I also don't really care because I think that, there are different types of crime novels and different types of mysteries. And it is, there is a very conventional way to do it and an unconventional way to do it. And I think that, you know, a mystery is anything that gets you to turn the page. You know, who is the um, naked man and why, what is he running from? But there is a crime in my book. There's several crimes and it's an examination of lives of crime and what leads us to crime. But yeah, I mean, there probably are a bunch of very conventional followers of, you know, James Patterson who are not going to love it, but, you know, maybe they'll learn. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's again, it's not very conventionally constructed either. It's split between 2006 and 2010. And it's split between the city and the desert and circling backwards and forwards as you kind of draw in the disparate characters, the, the characters you weren't even sure who they were to start with. <laughs> but uh, you're, also, uh, you're also playing with the expectations of how those pieces might eventually fit together. Yes, that's um, a really astute way of putting it, because basically what I was doing is like crying my eyes out to figure out how they would ever come together. But no, I mean, I love the idea of, you know, again, as I as I say, you know, Skid Row isn't a conventional destination for most people, and it's not a place anyone intends to wind up. So just to figure out how lives come together to come in and out of Skid Row 
it's an interesting place. It's quite fluid. People will be there for some time and they'll come to the writing workshop and then they'll disappear for weeks. And where did they go? You know, you would think if you lived in Skid Row, you didn't have a lot of choices to go elsewhere, you know, but oh, she hasn't been around for a while or he hasn't been around for a while. You know, I went to stay with my sister. So there's this fluidity that really interested me in a place where we imagine everyone is just stuck. So I thought, you know, all the different characters sort of contribute to that idea of fluidity and motion. I guess it's almost, I mean, without giving too much away, it's also a question of endings as well. There are various conventional things that your characters, I mean, they're, they're, a couple of them could have had an affair. One of them might have wound up in some sort of confrontation that ended things rather than began something. Did you want to sort of mess with people's ideas about endings as well? Well, I guess I, I did, actually. It's a really great question um, because I, I keep talking about Skid Row exclusively, but it's a place that, you know, it's not an ending. There is this idea that you do can move on past your time in Skid Row and not everyone is fortunate enough to do so, but people do get housed, people do get back on their feet, or people figure out, you know, to go elsewhere or, you know, you know, go to a different homeless enclave. So my idea is that Skid Row is transitory. Um, there's a thriving community there. And there's a lot of desperation there, but it's an idea that you can move past it. But I, it's not necessarily always going to be a happy ending, you know. So I wanted to give this idea of, like, transition and transitory, you know, time period. So I left it a little open-ended. Sure. I mean, one of the ways that you've got these disparate elements, one of the ways you pull them together, the theme running through the book, if you'll excuse the pun, is the physical exertion. And the way that physical exertion can sometimes bring release or some kind of uh, oneness. Well, yeah. I mean, I was a professional athlete for many years, so like physical exertion is essential to me. It's sort of a catharsis, you know. And you know, in LA, there's a sense of even though it's a huge city and you you have to get across it, there's a sense of like being stagnant because you sit in your car, you're stuck in traffic, you go from point A to point B, and you're not paying attention. And there's very you know, except for these people you see hiking, you know, people who seem to have endless time to go on these major hikes first thing in the morning, you know in drive to a canyon or whatever, which I don't get a chance to do, there's not a lot of outdoor life in LA, which is so shocking. You know, it's a beautiful place, temperate, sunny, but there's not a great deal of living outside, spending time outside. Or inside your car or inside yeah. your apartment or, yeah. Yeah, and I felt like, oddly, I feel in New York, you're not stuck. In London, you're not stuck. You're moving around. In LA, oddly, you feel trapped, you know. People say, well, isn't it quite hot? Oh, don't worry. My house is air conditioned. My car is air conditioned. My office is air conditioned. But what you're really saying is, you know, I don't go outside. Have you run the routes? <laughs> the funny thing is, after I wrote the book, it is, a, it is a drive I know quite well because it was the first time I ever drove on the freeway. I drove backwards along that route. Um, and I had to change the direction he was running at the very last minute. I had it going the opposite way, but for various reasons. I changed it. I drive this route every single morning to take my daughter to school. And the first day after the book came out and I got on the freeway and did that, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to be living through this forever. <laughs> the exact, Trapped in your novel. Exact same. And, and the odd part is I only drive that very section on the highway, in this very short section of the 110 from, through downtown. But you haven't actually got your running shoes out and gone and... No, but someone recently drove a, rode a bicycle naked down that part of I mean, the freeway. I don't mean on the freeway. I mean when Tony runs through Pico, for example. Um, I've walked it. I live really close to yeah. part of that section, and I've walked up and down Pico. Um, it's really fascinating. I guess I've got a question about why is sport, which, as you say, is an important, but why is it so hard to write about? Well, for me, it's really hard to write about because I'm very... I'm so close to it that I worry about getting it wrong. Mm. 
I always admire writers who write about sport who aren't professional athletes. They somehow do a really good job. You know, I often find myself writing about things that I'm not that good at, like music or, you know, textile design in my first novel. And I find a little distance, at least for me, helps a little bit of abstraction. But sport is hard because it's really internal. You know, and the struggle is really internal. And also the other reason writing about sport is difficult is because the tendency to like play by play, the action is really dull. So it's hard. You want to get inside the mentality of it, but not describe the game itself because no one needs those details of the ball is here, the court is here, the line is here, you know, players are all, it's a lot of a stage setting. And I guess that one of the things about, as it were, sport in this book is it's not really sports as it were, it's people pushing their bodies. I'm thinking particularly it's, it's unusual to see a, a young, fit woman pushing herself physically in a way that's not explicitly sexual. I'm thinking of the scene where Brit is wielding a sledgehammer. Well, yeah. I mean, so Brit is an ex-tennis player, you know, who's dropped out of college because she um, made some mistakes. And she's only known competition her whole life. It's the only thing she's known. She's been trained as a professional or to be a college athlete from a very young age. And her whole life is centered around competition. So she has been told what to do forever. You know, you go to your training, you get into college, your coach tells you what to do. And she's cut loose from that. And the only world she knows is competition. She gets to this commune and she wants to win at commune. She wants to be the best. She wants to beat all the other women at the commune to be closest to the leader. And she wants to cut the heads off those chickens better than anyone else. And she's got this visceral competitive nature. And, you know, I think for those of us who are professional athletes, you know, it's really hard to restrain that. Like I am, I am competitive, though, uh, in the strangest ways. And you just see, you know, you read you read book reviews, you're like, is that one better than mine? Is this one better than mine? So it's like, you know, it doesn't really matter because there's room for everyone in that world. But this sort of system of rankings, just it's hard to put it aside, you know. That's kind of because, I mean, because you're a professional squash player for a little while. That, that's kind of built into you now. Yeah. I mean, now it's a little definitely abated <laughs> and I'm much chiller. But um, the system of like ranking yourself and judging yourself against other people. Also, I think that's something that women are taught to do from a young age, unfortunately, is to compare and to... You know, to, on a very different set of metrics. Exactly. Yeah. And Brit is really a product of being both ex-athlete and an ex-female athlete, where she's always, you know, being compared to other women, mostly unfavorably, is something that happens when you grow up in sports. And also the only her only value, her only self-worth is to be better than someone. So if she's gonna if she's gonna cut the head off some chicken, she's gonna do the most. I mean, if I was gonna cut a head off a chicken, which I've actually done, I've actually killed a chicken in exactly this method, but I was much younger. I was twelve. But if I was with a group of people and I I'd want to do it best, for sure. <laughs> Readers of Visitation Street will be pleased to see Renton Davis coming back. Is this is this the beginning of a kind of Balzacian roman fleuve of the American precariat? <laughs> Whoa, that's a lot of words. Hey. <laughs> um, you know, I was I love Robertson Davies. The way he's sort of in the Manticore trilogy and a couple of his other trilogies has a light weave between the books. And I think that's a really cool way to sort of structure trilogies. I hope that Ren will appear in my next book. I love him very, very much. But I don't want it to be, you know, heavy-handed. I, if I thought about doing it, I'd probably fail. But if I'm writing and find him, I'll be so excited. So I'm really hoping I find a place for him. Is it just another way of messing with the endings? Yes, exactly. Nothing. You know, it's so funny. I got a lot of questions after Visitation Street about what happened. And I thought, well, what happened is the book ended. Like, that's the end. And then I realized, well, that's just an abstract point that I put, I mean, a random point that I put on it. And all these characters are moving off into time and space. And I really wondered what happened to Ren. I sort of 
the other one seemed a little clearer to me because they all remained in Brooklyn and he's disappeared. So he came back. I had no idea that he was coming back. And maybe he'll appear again. I hope so. Ivy Pakoda talking there to Richard Lee. Wonder Valley is published in paperback with the Indigo Press. And Robert Plowman's blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are, is with Alan Lane. Both are out now. Next week, is it a novel or is it a poem? Robin Robertson on his noir-saturated, man-booker-nominated hybrid work, The Long Take, while Andrew McMillan gets playful with his newest poetry collection, Playtime, exploring childhood and adolescence. Until then, as ever, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. And join the discussion on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead, and my producer, Susanna Tresillian, goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.